0: from a Christian perspective, theologically speaking, how fallen or how ruined or how corrupt is our various states and or the states we live in now? It's sort of like analogous to the question of how corrupt morally is the fallen human person. The fallen human person is wounded, but they can still do a lot of good.
1: So hello again. From, this is Maria Orlandi, Associate Director of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, and I'm pretty excited today for this episode of what we can't not talk about because we have as an invited speaker somebody who really doesn't need presentations, and I mean Father Thomas Joseph White. Good morning, Father White.
0: Good morning. I'm grateful to be here. So you're in Rome, right? I am in Rome. So it's my afternoon, and it's but it's great to visit Austin, Texas, even virtually.
1: Thank you. Well, we'll hope to host you soon in person. But as you mentioned, we'll also be proud to host you online again very soon. With somebody else who's um, in this episode with me today is Anna Jordan. Hello. Hello, Anna. Uh, Anna is a student at UT Austin. She's an an undergraduate in political philosophy, but most importantly, she is one of the student leaders at the Domestic Institute chapter here in Austin, correct? Yes, with pleasure. So, yeah, the event where we'll have again um, Father White with us, who, for those of you, maybe not even one person doesn't know who is, that he is the director of the Domestic Institute at the Angelico in Rome. But yeah, we're going to have an event co-sponsored by the Austin Institute and by the Thomistic Institute in November, Um, the the title of which will be Aquinas on the Final Purpose of Human Existence and Human Prudence. We are curious to follow up on some articles you wrote back in April, which made you even more famous um, than you usually are, because you entered a very hot political debate. And I refer to the articles you published on First Things about religious freedom restrictions and sacraments and how to prudently be Christians. So is that okay with you? Can we follow up on that?
0: Yeah, sounds good. Go ahead and and, uh, fire away. Uh, Let's talk about this. I, I don't claim to have any special insight, but I'm interested in the topic.
1: Well, I think that a special insight for us for sure is as we talked about prudence, and we talk about prudence here in our seminars, my question is, having appreciated highly uh, your articles back then, how did you make that prudent judgment of saying, okay, now it's time for me to write something? Or how, how does, it, especially in your, your, in your case, a religious person make this decision of deciding when it's time to speak? And then if you want, you know, how does an ordinary person, a non-religious person
0: do it? No, the religious people are ordinary. Not being religious (laughs) is the ordinary. But anyway, listen, so the context of the articles you're referring to, I wrote two articles in First Things magazine. I wrote one on the public discourse about the ethics of the quarantine in the early months. And the stimulus behind that was that when the federal governments, both in Europe and in United States began to take measures that were more aggressive to ask people to quarantine to regulate businesses. Of course, in Italy and France, this was particularly strict because they closed down freedom of movement and declared martial law in a certain sense. Very extraordinary. There were a lot of contestations about this, not just from, you might say, the perspective of civic philosophy or governmental philosophy. There were also contestations from religious people the main one of the main reasons this occurred is because they were the governments were asking people not to meet in church, and for the most part, religious leaders, be they Catholic bishops or Protestant leadership, in the predominant in the countries in question, were exceeding to the governmental request. So you had people dispensed from the the normal obligation to attend Sunday worship in the Catholic church, and you had many Protestant institutions follow likewise that kind of you know inclination. So the question then became is religious freedom being hampered or are religious leaders in some sense, you might say, being overly cautious about a natural good, um, a limited public health measure, and are they conceding too much to civic law? So on the one hand, is the government, you might say, inflating too much? And on the other side, is the freedom of religion shrinking too greatly and are religious leaders conceding too much? And then there were other ethical questions about what are our religious obligations if you're experiencing a kind of low-grade, I'd call COVID a low-grade plague, meaning it's much more deadly than the ordinary flu. It's about five times more deadly, it seems, but it's not deadly the way the bubonic plague is. So, you know, what are ethical obligations? What's wise, what's prudent, or, you know, what would be a good moral framework of wisdom with which to address the issue, okay? So that was the background. If I could just say a few words
1: about the sort of principles that I was arguing from. To try to reassess what you just said. So on one hand, the first reason for you as a religious person to enter the debate is you're answering to a religious question. Because you're not answering to the question made by the people complaining about how much the state or the government can do. But more you're answering more a doubt or a criticism coming from, in this case, Catholics. Wondering whether they were concerned. Yeah, and I mean, Catholics
0: are 20% of the U.S. population, and if you add them to actively practicing Protestants, that's you know almost you you reach start to reach like something like 50% of the population. So when you have half of the population group concerned about a question of major question of civic freedom, you have a you have a national free you know it question at stake that touches civic polity. But my, you know, what I wanted to try to – one of the reasons I, I engaged was I, I believed that there were divisions fomenting among religious people and within the Catholic Church that were un, unnecessary and perhaps unhelpful. Because part of what you do in ethical reflection is you think about what must never be done, what ought to be done in almost every case, and and then what – between those two extremes, what are the things that are optional? And among the things that are optional, what are the things that are most important, right? So – you generally say in a marriage that one spouse ought never to kill the other spouse. And then you say, well, they ought to try to you know, be compromising and reconcile with each other in almost every case. And they should aim for some basic goods of marital you know, love, friendship, education of children. But then whether they should live in Seattle or Chicago and whether they should take this job or that job, this child should go to a private school or not, or you know, how they should d- divide their time and their responsibilities, that's where the, the nitty gritty of prudence often comes in one of the things I want to just argue was a lot of these questions about COVID and quarantine are actually prudential questions Uh, because a lot of people are saying it's just wrong per se to have a quarantine. You can't do that. You can't close down churches. Or you have other people saying this is an excuse to shut down religious freedom. You know, those are both huge errors. And then you've got people would say, well, if we're going to shut down the practice of Sunday worship, then the Christian obligations are just suspended indefinitely. Like, oh, you know, I'm not going to church on Sunday. So my life as a Christian or as a religious person is now I don't have any obligations. That's ridiculous. When, when you have a public social crisis, you have more obligations to try to help other people.
1: You mentioned a comparison of what was happening in France and Italy with those levels of quarantine and what was happening in the US. And I think you have, as much as I do, as people listening know that my funny accent comes from my um, origin, You, we, we both have this view of like, I'm the Italian watching what's happening in the US and you are the... American watching what is happening in Rome, so I have more of a talk uh, rather than a Thomistic question, and saying, did you notice different rea- more than the measures, but like different reactions?
0: Well, the, the in- biggest difference, I mean, the, the Italian quarantine was stricter, and it was effective, It was effective. It was more devastating economically in the short term, uh, but it's you know it, it is unclear what its long-term consequences will be. On the other hand, you know, the United States did maybe uh, took the, the question of civic civil liberties a different direction and allowed more civil liberties, and especially in states that were predominantly Republican, that there was a, a, a greater concern about that. But you know, so there was a kind of trade-off, and I think that in some ways the Italian uh, strictness, which is not what you know, you don't think of the Italians as a strict people, but in some cases, crisis they can band together in that way. And the kind of the the sort of strictness with which they impose the quarantine seems to have a a good effect over the period of about 12 weeks. But I don't know that in an Anglo-Saxon society it would be very easy to imitate. But the biggest difference to me is the politicization of the virus in the United States. It just is a fact that's become a hugely political topic. Everything from attitudes towards sort of let's call them standard safety techniques like wearing masks or washing your hands or whatever to questions of the moral evaluation of leaders that's happening around the topic of the spread of the disease. So, so let me put it this way, and this may be un, unfair or untrue to people, but it seems to me, having friends who are of both party affiliations, that actually a lot of people who are more um, aligned with the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party, don't, they don't necessarily like the quarantine measures, and a lot of them want only limited exercise of them mm-hmm. or want limited exercise of them. But they do tend to blame each other for things going wrong politically. I don't mean personally blame one person or another. The parties blame each other for things in ways that they may in fact be more about just um, the havoc caused by natural disease and not by political malfeasance.
1: You yeah know, it so sounds like the division you were talking about before so the one among religious people was the one that you had tried and I think you accomplished to diminish writing what you wrote. And we would now need political leaders, as we hope they will do, to do sort of the same kind of prudential intervention in divisions that are perhaps not based and not even linked to our political ideas, but are just a way to be divided, a further way to be divided.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, another thing that sort of unites... The, the Europeans and the Americans governmentally and culturally at this moment is there is the kind of belief that if the government does the right things, it can save us from death. And so, I mean, there's a big, there's a trust in the centralized secular government system to ward off dangers to the person, dangers of death, dangers of natural disaster. And it's true. I think that the state has a fundamental obligation. I'd say the state's most fundamental obligation, really, according to natural law,
1: something I I meant to ask you because that's probably the first thing you mentioned in the first article you wrote that it was about the state's obligation and what we were thinking about with Anna too. Is it possible that maybe some citizens of these do not take these state obligations seriously because they witness the action of a state that pays for the worst things? The idea that the same state that allows our self-destruction whenever we want is actually protecting us, is there maybe a reason why the state obligation is less credible to the ears?
0: Well, okay. So I think, let me say, that's a great question. First of all, it seems to be an objective truth. It can be argued about, but I mean, I would want to argue it is an objective truth that the most fundamental responsibility of the state is to protect the human life of its citizens. Afterwards, you know, providing a format for goods and services, market exchanges, education, public utilities, I mean, all that's necessary, but it's kind of layered onto a more fundamental obligation to protect human life. That's why you have standing armies. That's why you have to provide federal police, federal and local police officials, fire firemen and healthcare and so forth. I mean, there's kind of a minimal commitment to the saving of human life, protecting human life. And when you have natural disasters, be they hurricanes or tornadoes, or for example, in this case, extraordinary diseases, then the state <laughs> does have a warranted obligation to do what it can to protect citizens. Now, mitigating against that are two factors, I think, that are different and go in different directions. One is an extraordinary libertarianism, which is that, an idea that, you know, I, no, no, the state is actually secondary. First of all, it's my individual life or the life of my family, my clan. The state is a kind of possibly convenient, possibly inconvenient addition to life. And the best thing it can do is get out of the way of the freedom of the individual. And, and that, if you go down that road in a more extraordinary fashion, you do wonder why the state would impose on you any measures of public health that could affect you or other people because it's my choice, it's my body, it's my family. And I take that to be an unwarranted and extreme form of individualism. Obviously, there can be cases where the state does crush the individual's freedom of rights or its famil- familial freedom. And there are delicate cases even with the coronavirus. You know, And examples are the city of San Francisco telling people, they can't assemble in church or even have mass outside where you have like something like a 40, 40 times less likely chance of conveying the disease. I mean, that's just unreasonable. Uh, yeah, and if that they is,
1: can raise Texas uh, here, the guidelines where, you know, the limit of 10 people, including out, outdoors, but with a religious, uh, religious exemption.
0: I mean, I think the other side is, if the state has shown a negligence in protecting human life, in the face of individual abuses of individual choice, and the famous cases would be euthanasia and abortion, where the state allows individual citizens to decide, let's say just based on elective freedom, to destroy their own life or the life of another person. Then if the state comes to me and says, oh no, now we're really getting serious about protecting human life, and you're going to obey these laws, I mean, you you can get people who wonder if the state has lost all credibility and authenticity. And one of the things I've argued is it has not lost credibility and authenticity to that level. In the same way that I would, even in a state that provides for legalized abortion or euthanasia, I would still hope and trust that at least usually I can drink the drinking water and it's not going to harm me. That if the FDA says that this or that drug that I use like aspirin is not going to poison me. I mean, there are a lot of basic commitments to the common good that where the state plays a role of regulation or provision that we need to trust in. I mean, I think that it partly has to do with how, from a Christian perspective, theologically speaking, how fallen or how ruined or how corrupt is our various states and or the states we live in now. It's sort of like analogous to the question of how corrupt morally is the fallen human person. The fallen human person is wounded, but they can still do a lot of good. And even someone who is, you know, an atheist who may not appreciate Christianity and who has a, um, let's even say for the sake of argument, has some noteworthy vices and tells significant lies. whatnot. Even in that case, you know, I could trust that person to point me honestly down aisle five in Walmart to buy the right product I need to buy in a particular case. They have their good moments. And when you get to things that are so fundamental, like the protection of human life in a medical crisis uh, on a widespread scale, Yes, major corruption can occur, uh, but also sometimes paranoia can be unwarranted because the the state can actually effectively, you know, roll out provisions to protect human persons, and that's a yeah. judgment. You know, that is a judgment of prudence. That's a judgment of particular prudence.
1: So that leads me to another thing that I want to do, meant to ask, and that probably will will need you. Uh, I don't know. We'll need to let you go uh, to your studies and all the duties you have in, in Rome. And you did mention in your um, article, if I may bring you back there, the obedience. Obedience being something that is foreign from religious people. Uh, obedience to their bishops. Well, I mean, a
0: reflective of obedience, not a blind one, but a reflective one. But yes, I mean, one of the things I asked in the articles: do the bishops have the right in principle to suspend public masses temporarily for the, due to a plague or a massive A widespread disease. And the the fact of the matter is historically it's taken place before. And they do have the right. There are precedents in the history of the church and there are warranted reasons they could argue theologically for it in the short term. Some of this stuff about prudence has to do with the time and place. It's one thing when we're doing a first two-month quarantine to keep the uh, hospitals from being overrun. And that did happen in France and Italy in terrible ways. And it also has to do with the fact that we... We're still trying to figure out how serious the disease was.
1: Father, do you have any positive take on how you mentioned? You know, maybe this time to slow down and not to take planes and to spend, you know, less things to do is gonna maybe make us reflect more on what really counts in life and. So as a religious person, you might have had emails or calls from people that were maybe going more into that direction, or you might have had the opposite experience. And I think, well, I think that- a lot of people found the
0: quarantine very stressful and they found it like it's we know there's been a lot of domestic abuse, domestic violence against women mm. and children. There's also, you know, there's probably been people zoning out on the internet in ways that haven't been healthy, healthy for them. But in, at the very least, it's an inconvenience a massive inconvenience. And more than that, it's usually a reckoning with our fragility as human beings and as a culture, and the fact that our life can be overturned in a day by all kinds of changes in the world. And, and we're mortal and we confront death. And I think that all of that, as you know, it, when you confront things so fundamental, it can lead you in different directions. It can lead you towards more cynicism and despair and resignation, or it can lead you towards greater self knowledge and spiritual growth, prayer and study and friendship. And give you perspective on what's important. I think some families have been strengthened by the trial, even, you know, a lot of secular people have spent more time with their children and home, you know, and then I think other people have really felt just depressed and crushed. And especially, you know, to be fair, a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of their psychological health and work, uh, health and, and well is is bound up with their work and their work's been overturned. There's also been people who've been, you know, hurt economically, massively. And then there's people who also, just live in countries where they don't have sufficient medical care. But I mean, there's also been heroic and important things that have happened. I mean, I know Salesians in India have fed literally millions of people uh, in India during this crisis. That's an untold heroic and amazing thing. I mean, they turned all the parishes into local food centers, and they fed millions of of people. So there have been great works of sanctity hidden, you know, great works of holiness and goodness, uh, there have been priests who died from COVID. There have been a lot of medical personnel who gave their life, uh, doctors and nurses. In Italy, there were over 100 doctors and nurses who gave their life to care for their patients. I think there have been a lot of people who deepened their prayer life. And I think you know, been, there's a call to spiritual maturity that people have answered. But there's also just been a lot of people who've not heard it. the call of opportunity. that fomented division. I mean, I, I do think a lot of the public rioting in America has been unhelpful. Because I think it's, it's um, however warranted the rebellion against racism can be the counteractivity of a kind of anarchism or, I mean, a kind of activism that posits too despairing or cynical a view of the common life of America. I think there's dangers there. You know, so I think some of the spiritual restlessness we're seeing in our culture right now is a response to the novelty of our situation. And it's a very unstable and uncertain time. I think in this context, Christians have an obligation to deepen their, their own life with God, to root themselves more deeply in their life with God. But also that, you know, it's a time to have balanced friendships, uh, to try to seek spiritual, healthy friendships, and to, to reach out to people who are lonely. There's a lot of lonely people right now. So,
1: Father, if I may, if I may yeah. say that... Um, we hope actually with this podcast and having you that we are reaching people that are living maybe this quarantine if they are in vulnerable situations and being a little less lonely and regardless of being Christian or not, deepening their knowledge and thinking more deeply, critically and for themselves to use a motto that was dear to me in my Princeton time about the big questions in life, which is what the Austin Institute uh, for the Study of Family and Culture does not only for students, but for, for everyone. We'll look forward to having you tell us more about the reason why we are here in this world, like what's the ultimate purpose of our life, which is sounds like an irrelevant question to ask. Well, least Thomas Aquinas'
0: view of that, Thomas Aquinas' view of that, who, who, who has some pretty interesting arguments on that point.
1: Well, by the life you lead, I think that his answers convinced you enough. Well, he's helping me, yeah, he's helping me. Father White, thank you again very much for your time and for your words, and we look forward to having you again with us for our event in November.
0: Okay, great. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, and thank you for all your work.